The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. I want to welcome you. Those of you that are here in the, in the sanctuary, welcome. Glad you're here today. Beautiful day in Southern Oregon. Those of you that are online, I want to welcome you as well. We've got some folks out in the overflow. As always, we want to welcome those folks. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. Man, and last week I was sick. I was supposed to preach. And, uh, and on Saturday at like 5 p.m., I texted Jeremy. And I said, hey, Jeremy, I don't think I'm going to be able to go tomorrow. And so in like, in like, on like 12 hours notice, Jeremy prepared and preached last week's sermon. Would you give Jeremy a hand for pinch hitting like that? It was awesome. I got I to gotta worship from home and I uh, got to sit under the preached word. It was, it was a blessing for my family and I honestly... Hey, we're in a series here uh, going through the gospel of Mark. We started it. This is the week three. So today we're going to wrap up chapter one of Mark's gospel. The first week uh, back on September 12th, we kind of dove into what we kind of refer to as the prologue of the gospel. And uh, yeah, by the way, turn to Mark 1 if you've if you're got your Bibles today. We're going to be starting today in verse 29. But, but as we started the, the, the sermon series, we looked at the prologue, kind of the introduction uh, of Mark's gospel. And Mark kind of goes out of his way in writing this book to, uh, to very early on to let us know that Jesus is, is, is king, that he is Lord, and he is Savior. And multiple times and in multiple different ways, he lets us know that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And as we outlined uh, over the last couple of weeks, the author of Mark is, is John Mark, who was a contemporary or a friend of the Apostle Peter. And so, so Mark is kind of a firsthand account of Peter's eyewitness experience with Jesus. And so as we get into the part that Jeremy preached last week, we have this kind of banner statement in verses 14 and 15. And it's kind of quoting what Jesus was saying his purpose to come to earth was. Verse 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel. This is kind of the banner statement over the ministry of Jesus. And now as we kind of work through the first three chapters of Mark's gospel, it's sort of like Peter is giving us bullet points of the ministry of Jesus, all of which follow under the banner of his proclamation of the gospel as he calls people to repent and believe in his name. And if you were here last week, Jeremy walked us through Jesus preaching in the synagogue uh, uh, on a, uh, Oh, first he walked us through Jesus calling four disciples, fishermen along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And then in the, that s- Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and, and Mark records that Jesus taught with authority that people had never seen before. And they were uh, uh, amazed at his authority. And then in the middle of his teaching, this demon-possessed man comes into the synagogue and, and immediately says to Jesus, you are the Son of God. Uh, and, and so Jesus uh, rebukes and, and, and casts the demon out of this man. And, and the people watching are astonished. Not only does Jesus preach with authority, he has authority over demons. And that's where uh, the text ends. Verse 28 says that the fame of Jesus kind of instantaneously spread throughout the regions of Galilee. And that's where we pick up today. Beginning here in verse 29. Now, this is a continuation of the same day. Jesus has just got done teaching in the synagogue. He has just uh, cast out the unclean spirit from the man. His fame was spreading. And then we read what was going on later on on that Saturday, beginning in verse 29. And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he, was, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 35. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See, 
that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And the people were coming to him from every quarter. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we ask that today, as we gather in this place and as we look at the Gospel of Mark, God, as we read your word, God, would you meet us here today? God, would you enable us as we, as we read your word, as we study your word, as we sit under the authority of your word, God, would you enable us to encounter you? God, as we, as we gaze upon the ministry of Jesus early on, God, would you help us to see the very heart of Jesus, the very heart of God lived out in the ministry of Jesus, God. And as we look at the heart of Jesus played out on these pages, God, would you enable that to, to then, by the power of your spirit, God, form in us your very heart that we could be an extension of you in the world in which we live today. God, have your way with us in this place. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. You know, one of my favorite books is an autobiography written by Eugene Peterson. It's called The Pastor. And it's just sort of Eugene Peterson. He grew up in Montana. I grew up in Montana. So I read the story, and it kind of reminds me a bit of my childhood. He went on to, 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 to leave Montana. He went into academia, felt called to plant a church, planted a church in Baltimore, and then had this very fruitful ministry over the course of many, many years. And then he ended up kind of doing some, wrote a lot of books, and he had a lot of influence. And I don't agree with everything Eugene Peterson says, but his book was absolutely interesting to read. And one of the things that Eugene Peterson did really well when he was in Baltimore was he had this organization or this group, this community called a Company of Pastors. And Eugene was very good at gathering pastors from multiple denominations. They would gather on a regular basis, and he sort of discipled and mentored a lot of different pastors from across the Christian landscape in the Baltimore area. And in his book, he tells of this experience— but he tells of this one particular encounter he had with this one particular pastor who was a young man who was hungry for a more prestigious pulpit. He, he was pastoring a church, actually doing a good job in a smaller church, and this guy, all he talked about was this desire to have more fame, more influence, bigger platform, really wanted more crowds to gather. And, and he was kind of pronouncing to the whole group of pastors that he was going to leave for a more prestigious pulpit in a more significant community. And then Eugene, kind of being in a mentoring role, wrote this young man a letter uh, kind of encouraging him to really rethink his decisions and his heart motives for wanting to go to this larger pulpit. And he actually, in his book, includes uh, excerpts from this letter that he wrote this young man. And I'm going to read that to you today. Bear with me, because what he's talking about is the allure of crowds. In our text today, we see the allure of crowds. So this has purpose. So let's listen to what Eugene Peterson said to this young pastor, then we'll apply it to our lives. Eugene says to him, I certainly understand the appeal of wanting to pastor larger and larger crowds of people. I feel it myself frequently. But I'm also suspicious of the appeal and believe that gratifying, it's just, is, gratifying it is destructive both to the gospel and to the pastoral vocation. It is the kind of thing Americans specialize in and one of the consequences that American religion and the pastoral vocation has that has led to its shabby state. He goes on to say, size is the great depersonalizer. Kierkegaard's criticism uh, applies. The more people, the less truth. And then he goes on to say this, and here's the crux of his argument. Classically, there are three ways which humans find transcendence. There are three ways that humans find transcendence apart from God as revealed in the cross of Jesus. They do so through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, through the ecstasy of recreational sex, and through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds probably because they get so much ego benefit from the crowds. But a crowd destroys the spirit as thoroughly as excessive drink and depersonalized sex. It takes us out of ourselves, but not to God, only away from him. The religious hunger is rooted in the unsatisfactory nature of the self. We hunger to escape the dullness, the boredom, the tiresomeness of me. We can escape upward or downward. Drugs and depersonalized sex are false transcendence downward. A crowd is an exercise in false transcendence upward, which is why all crowds are spiritually pretty much the same, whether at a football game, political rallies, or at church. Now, shocking, I understand. I shared previously in my journey of, of walking with the Lord that I have, I, I absolutely, in my little weird microcosm that none of you have probably lived in, this little pastor's microcosm that I live in, I understand the allure of crowds that can be sometimes superimposed over the church. It drove me in ministry for years and years. 
And it's interesting to me how much in the church world we automatically equate large crowds with successful and fruitful ministry. If the church is big and lots of people show up, well, then it must be the markers of success. And sometimes that is true, but oftentimes that's not. We often think that the larger the crowd, the more successful the ministry or the minister. But, but when we look at the life of Jesus, his ministry began with large crowds, but it ended with him utterly alone on a cross. The only crowds at the end of Mark are the ones shouting, crucify him. And so I wonder, rather than court the crowds, we look at the ministry of Jesus and he, he fled the crowds. And as you look at the ministry of Jesus, he actually didn't speak very highly of crowds. Do you remember what he said in Matthew 7 when he's talking about the narrow and the wide gate? About his kingdom, how to enter his kingdom? He said, enter through the narrow gate. He said, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. In other words, crowds. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So I think about you and me gathered here today at Heritage Christian Fellowship when it comes to our spiritual lives, I, I certainly can identify with being tempted by the allure of crowds. Maybe you can't. I absolutely can identify with that. We tend to think large crowd equals something special, something significant. There's a buzz. There's a hum. There's an excitement with large crowds. We want to be part of something special. We want to be part of something unique, so we're drawn to crowds. And they can look different ways. It could be an actual crowd or it can be an online crowd. That's why if you look over the course of kind of American pop culture, especially when it comes to spiritual or Christian pop culture, we see these fads that gain such attraction so quickly in America. Whether it's the greatest, latest, greatest guru or the latest, greatest personality or ministry that's getting all the fame in Christian culture. But sometimes it's just beyond Christian culture. It's just sort of like the spiritual culture, the latest, greatest book. Do you guys remember The Secret? How that just took off and every talk show host was talking about the secret, the spiritual fad. Sometimes it's the kind of trending new thing. It's the Kabbalah bracelets. It's the crystals. It's sage. I see it all over social media right now. Crystals and sage are the thing right now among Gen Zers. It's so easy to get caught in the trap of the crowd when the crowds of people are clamoring to get their hands or to be around the new thing. It can feel really, really good to be on the inside of the new thing. So what does all this have to do with our text today? Well, today as we watch, we're going to see Jesus fleeing crowds. Not so much that he is demonizing crowds in and of themselves, but the reality is as we look at these crowds, they're not interested in the heart of Jesus. The crowds want what the crowds want. They don't want what Jesus wants. And so there's this contrast, there's this conflict that takes place between Jesus and the crowds. And as we watch this unfold and as we see the heart of Jesus on display, we're led to reflect on our own lives and on the life of our church my hope is, as we study this text today, at the end of this sermon, that collectively we as the church of Christ in this place can pray, may the heart of Jesus be the heart of our church. That's what I hope we understand. As we look at the heart of Jesus on display in these few verses, my prayer is that we as the church, both individually and collectively, can say, God, may your very heart be my very heart. May your heart be our heart as your church. Look with me at verses 29 through 34. Pay attention to, to these these. Verse 31 and verse 34. In verse 31, we see that Jesus came and took Simon's mother-in-law by the hand. If you want to underline, he came and took her by the hand in your little journals, feel free to do that. Verse 34, we see later on that he, he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. Pay attention to that as well. And here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down, the first point of my sermon. We see the heart of Jesus on display here when we see his care for people. The heart of Jesus is revealed in the care for people. After we, we go back and we factor in last week's uh, sermon, we, we know this has been a very, by the time our text picks up, it's been a fruitful and an eventful morning for Jesus. He's been at synagogue with his new disciples. He's entered the house of, of Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. Later on, uh, Jesus would rename Simon to Peter himself. But he gets there and he's told immediately upon entering the home after a very busy day that this mother-in-law is sick. She has a fever. And in the ancient world, fever was seen as its own kind of independent illness. It wasn't necessarily connected to other sicknesses. And so Simon and Andrew are concerned about this woman. They tell Jesus about her. And we see in verse 31 that Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And her response was to begin to serve them. Notice the way that Jesus extends care to this woman. He, he draws near to her in her sickness. He touches her with a compassionate touch. 
and he heals her. He draws near, and he touches, and he heals her. And her response is to serve. As I was talking to this about the, to the staff earlier this week, they said to me, perhaps the greatest miracle in all of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus loves mother-in-laws. It's my only joke, guys. You got to laugh at it. That's all I got today. At least it didn't bomb entirely. <laughs> but as we look at Jesus caring for Simon's mother-in-law, this is the household of Simon who he had just called to follow him. Simon left his vocation. He left fishing to follow Jesus. And some scholars have looked on this. Some, some, some biblicists have looked on this and said, oh, this is evidence of God's blessing on the household of Peter. I read this week that the reference of, to Peter's mother-in-law serves to clarify what it meant for Peter to be confronted by Jesus' summons to follow him. Peter had a family and a home for which provision had to be made. The call to be a fisher of man demanded total commitment from Peter to Jesus. The healing here of his mother-in-law indicates that salvation had come to the household of Peter in response to his radical obedience to Jesus. And this text also notes that the sun goes down. That's significant because this was Sabbath, and Sabbath is marked from sundown to sundown. And so as soon as the sun would go down on a Saturday afternoon evening, that would mark the end of Sabbath. Now, put yourself back in the shoes of Capernaum, this village where Jesus is. That day had been a crazy day. He walked into synagogue where the village would have been gathered, or the, the community would have been gathered. They hear him teach with authority, which amazed them. They see him cast out a demon, which astonished them. And so as soon as these people walked back to their house after synagogue, they began to tell everybody, and word of Jesus was spreading throughout the area. And everybody was waiting till the sun to go down because you couldn't work on the Sabbath. So as soon as the sun go down, we see what happens. We see hordes of people come. If you look at verse 32, it says they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Verse 33 says that the whole city was gathered outside the doors of Peter's home. This suggests that the crowds were gathering as they were growing. And if you think about the day for Jesus, it was an intense day. He had done a lot of things. And now all these people, as as Jesus kind of stumbles back to Peter's house, Simon Peter's house. Is he, is he, maybe he's expecting a meal. He goes there and he, he initially heals uh, his, Peter's mother-in-law. And as he's probably getting ready to settle down after a long day, there's a knock at the door. The sun has gone down. They open up the door to see hundreds, maybe even thousands of sick and demon-possessed people desperate for care. And if you think about what, and, and Jesus heals them. <laughs> he, he doesn't say, no, I, I've had a long day. I'm too tired. He, he extends himself and he offers care to, to countless numbers of people to masses. And if you think about the, the Jewish context, or these are the, this, this was a Jewish context, this was a Jewish community, and they, as you know, were long expecting the coming Messiah. They were waiting for the Deliverer. They were waiting for the Savior. Their understanding of the Messiah was informed by Old Testament prophecy. And one of the things that Isaiah the prophet especially highlights about the coming Messiah, the, the, the Deliverer, the Savior, is that he would be a, 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 the Messiah would perform mighty works. Don't turn there, but in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, as, as the prophet is speaking about the day of salvation, he says that the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So this was the people of God were recognizing the very intentional works of Jesus was signifying, was revealing that he was in fact the Messiah. He was in fact the one with whom they had been waiting. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But he's unlike any king they ever had seen. Think about the first century. Who did they know? Who were the kings or those at the top of the food chain that a first century Jew would have known of? Caesar? Herod? I mean, Caesar was a tyrant. He was an untouchable tyrant who brutalized his subjects. Herod was corrupt. He was corrupt morally. He was corrupt politically. All he cared about was personal gain. If you, if you were to ra- be raised in this culture, your understanding of king would have been those that live in ivory towers that are untouchable. They instigate affliction. They take, 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 take for personal gain. And yet here, in the early days of his ministry, King, king Jesus shows up on the scene in an upside-down, backwards, reversed way. He redefines what kingship really looks like. He shows himself to be a wholly different kind of king. His authority isn't a political authority. It's not a nationalistic uh, authority. It's not a militaristic authority. It is a spiritual authority. He is king of kings, in fact. Even the demons have to listen to him. He doesn't dwell in an ivory tower. He is a carpenter's son. 
He's not untouchable. He's not unknowable. He's not out of reach for the common man. He's an everyman. He's an average run-of-the-mill kind of guy, if you look at his vocation and his upbringing. He is approachable. He's knowable. He's touchable. He enters their homes. He enters their place of worship. He teaches them and shows care for them. And not only that, like, at great personal cost, he extends himself to others. He loves people. He's concerned for people. He has compassion for people. Earthly kings are marked by pride and hunger for power and self-interest, but Jesus meets these men and women in their pain. His kingship is marked by humility, by a laying down of power, by a self-giving sacrificial love for others. It is an upside-down way of King Jesus. It's the upside-down way of of King Jesus and his kingdom that, that inspired the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, to call Christians to live in the same way that Jesus has modeled. You don't have to turn there, but in, in Philippians chapter 2, this very well-known text, Peter, or, or, or Paul says this to the Philippian church. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but Jesus emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this early ministry of Jesus, as we look upon him, we see his heart in the way he cares, genuinely cares for people. Listen, may the heart of Jesus be the heart of his church. May the heart of Jesus be the heart of our church. May we have deep care for others. Let's go back to verse 35 and 39, the middle part of our text today. The uh, second thing I would encourage you to write down is simply this. We see the heart of Jesus on display in the commitment he shows to his calling. We see the heart of Jesus in his commitment to his calling. You could also use the word mission or purpose. His commitment to his mission. His commitment to his purpose. Look at verse 35. This has always been such an uh, interesting bit of uh, text for me. Verse 35, it says, Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This verse has, has been a verse that I've, I've meditated on for the last 10 years. I mean, I think about the previous day. I'm assuming Jesus was up late. You know, the sun had gone down. Hordes of people showed up outside of Peter's house. And he was up casting out demons and healing the sick. I don't know how much sleep he got, but before the sun comes up, Jesus gets up on very little sleep. He slips away to meet with the Father. Somehow in the darkness of the early morning, he tiptoes through Simon Peter's house. He tiptoes through the community of Capernaum. He, He journeys beyond the cultivated fields that would have wrapped around the city of Capernaum. And he finds himself absolutely alone and in solitude where he can pray, where he can commune with the Father. And notice the the phrase that Mark uses to describe the place of solitude that Jesus went to. It is a desolate place. This phrase appears later on in our text at the end of chapter 1. As the crowds became too much for Jesus to enter communities and cities and villages, he began to minister in a desolate place. That double term literally means a more accurate uh, interpretation would be a wilderness place. It's an absolutely wild place of solitude. And if you look ahead at chapter 6 in Mark's gospel, you don't have to turn there. But verses 30 through 33 or 34, uh, we see that the apostles had just got back from doing a bunch of work. They were tired. And Jesus says to his apostles, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so they went away on a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So notice that the phrase in Mark's gospel is always connected on some way to to crowds. In Mark, he tends to talk about the desolate place in contrast to, to crowds. Again, we're talking about crowds today. Jesus flees the crowds of Capernaum to go find a desolate place. Jesus avoids the crowds in the cities and villages and does ministry in a desolate place. When his disciples are tired and weary, Jesus purposely seeks out a desolate place where they can eat and find rest away from the crowds. They go to this wilderness place. But you know, those three places, we see the phrase desolate place in Mark's gospel, but we're actually introduced to a desolate place before all of this. 
Jeremy taught on this last week. I taught on it two weeks ago. If you go up to verses 11 and 12 in our text, or rather 12 and 13, we see at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, after he was baptized, we read in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel that the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was in the wild, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. There's something significant that happened in that wild place with Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry, in the prologue of Mark's gospel, Jesus was, was tempted by the enemy. He overcame the temptation. He did what Adam couldn't do. And as we see Jesus then retreating to desolate places throughout Mark's gospel, it's as if he's drawing upon that first wilderness experience as he heads back to the desolate place again and again. I read this week that these texts suggest Jesus deliberately withdraws from people to return to an area which has the character of the wilderness where he encountered Satan and sustained temptation. The nature of temptation in each instance may be related to the clamor of the crowds who are willing to find in Jesus a divine man who meets their needs and who wins their following. The people have, however, no conception of what it means to go out to the wilderness to bear the burden of judgment as Jesus has done. And so Jesus turns from their acclaim, the crowd's acclaim, returning to a place that recalls his determination to fulfill the mission for which he has come into the world. So he goes into this wild place, this desolate place, to get away from the temptation of the enemy, the temptation of the crowd. Notice what else Jesus does in this desolate place. It says he prays. Jesus goes to this desolate place to pray, to talk with the Father. It's so interesting to think about Jesus and the Trinity and him being fully God and fully man and praying with the Father. Only three, other, only three times in all of Mark's gospel do we have examples of Jesus praying. Here in the beginning, as he goes to a desolate place to pray after Capernaum. And in chapter 6, right after the feeding of the 5,000, he goes up on a mountainside and he prays. And at the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 14, as Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's betrayed, he goes and his disciples fall asleep and he leaves them. And he's utterly alone in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. These three occasions have the character in Mark's gospel of these critical moments in the ministry of Jesus. In each wilderness situation, Jesus is sustained by God through prayer. And it's through the prayer of Jesus that he affirms his intention to fulfill the will of God. Remember his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Take this cup of suffering from me, Lord, but not my will be done, your will be done. So what is God's will for Jesus? Well, it's certainly not to grow crowds. God's will for Jesus is certainly not for him to be a miracle man that creates a buzz and has tweetable tweets and writes a bunch of books and speaks at a bunch of conferences. That's not God's will for Jesus. Ultimately, God sent Jesus so that he would submit to the judgment of God on your behalf and on my behalf. Jesus came to hang on a cross as your substitute and as my substitute and to absorb the wrath of God that your sin deserves and my sin deserves. He came to lay his life down. Crowds are fickle. And crowds are dangerous. And as these crowds are clamoring to bring themselves to Jesus, they might see a miracle happen. Mark's gospel ends with crowds shouting, crucify him. Crowds are fickle. And regardless of the crowd's demands, Jesus remains committed to his calling, committed to his purpose. Man, may the heart of the church not get caught up in these fads and these trends. May the heart of the church be one that stays dedicated to the mission of Christ for his church. I'm reminded of what we exist for as a church here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. We believe it's a biblical mission. We're a gospel-centered body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That's why we breathe. That's why we're here. May we not get off point. Jesus knew his purpose, and he refused to bear the expectations of others. He rejected worldliness. And when Simon Peter and the others come up to him, it's kind of funny. These are like these brand-new disciples, these young fishermen who've been following Jesus for days. And, man, for them, it had to be a cool experience. They're in Capernaum, their hometown. This miracle man shows up, and he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick, and they're friends with him. I mean, I'm from a small town. You know how cool it would be to be friends with someone who is famous? And, and when they wake up, they're ready for day two of miracles, and Jesus is nowhere to be seen. So they, they head off into the wilderness. They find Jesus, and they rebuke him. There's like, a, there's like a note of reproach in their words to him. They say uh, uh, in verse 37, everyone is looking for you. They're, they're essentially saying, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, you're a rock star. Stuff is happening in Capernaum, and we're a big deal. So you need to come back to Capernaum and continue the miracle work that you've started. 
Jesus says, no, I got other things I got to do. Let us go on to the next towns, he says, that I may preach in these other towns. For that is why I came out. I did not come, Jesus says, to perform miracles. I came to proclaim the good news that people might repent and believe. Jesus did not come to assemble ecstatic crowds. He came to proclaim another kingdom, to call people to repentance and to call them into belief. And so to his fame-seeking, crowd-pleasing disciples, he burst their bubble. He says, no, 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 we're going back. We got, I got, there's, there's more to my mission. And I think about the temptation of these crowds and even of maybe Simon and Andrew and James and John to just like, to continue to see the miraculous work, the miracles that were happening in their midst. It had to be tempting. I mean, to see, you know, people with afflictions and ailments healed, to see demons cast out. It had to be an an, an ecstatic experience, but we're reminded here by the words of Jesus, he did not come to perform miracles. He came to proclaim another kingdom. He came to call you and me and all who would listen into repentance that we might believe and have life in his name. The greatest disease isn't fever or leprosy. It's sin. The greatest oppressor isn't a demon. It's death. And these miracles that Jesus enacts, that we get to watch and wonder, as he heals sickness, we're reminded that in his kingdom, ultimately, there will be no sickness. There will be no tears. As he, as he raises the, the dead to life, we're reminded that in his kingdom, death has been overcome. His kingdom is not of this world. It's nothing for Jesus to overcome sickness or demonic oppression. What's entirely more significant is Jesus has overcome sin and death. That's the greatest miracle. The purpose for which he came was to proclaim another kingdom and to invite you and me to repent of our sin and believe in his name. And as I look, you know, I I tend to be a critic of of pop culture Christianity. I probably shouldn't be. Uh, My wife tends to think if something's popular, I automatically don't like it because I've got a kind of a contrarian personality. So I'm not trying to cast stones at Christian culture, but but I, but I got to tell you, uh, this is just me personally. One of the one of the concerns that has risen up in my heart over the last couple of years, and really before that, actually, but especially in the last couple of years, has been the obsession within Christian culture of of the miraculous. And, and I'm not anti-miracle. After I got done preaching my sermon on. Thursday to the staff, as they reviewed my sermon, Aaron jokingly said after the end of my sermon, he's like, so Paul, if I'm getting one thing from your sermon today, it's that you're anti-miracle. It's like, no, Aaron, I'm not anti-miracle. I, I honestly, I'm not. But one of the things that concerns me is the way that that has seemed to become the kind of a preeminent thing, the centerpiece of so many songs and so much pop culture. Miracle, 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 miracle. And my concern is that as men and women seek after miracles, they stop looking to the God of miracles. And if their pursuit is a simple miracle and not the God of miracles, I I get concerned about that. And maybe there's been no other place where I've seen this played out than even in like the the musical trends of our day. I I was just looking, I listen to Christian music a lot, and there's so many like huge songs right now on Christian radio. The, the, The centerpiece of the songs is about miracles. Now, I think it's okay, and we should be praying for God to do the miraculous, but, but any miracle that God enacts on this side of heaven is just simply uh, something that points us to the, the hope that we have in a kingdom where there is no death, there is no sickness, where he wipes every tear. I have a, a, a former acquaintance who I'm friends with on social media, and uh, me and this, this person, we've known each other for about 20-plus years. And she comes from a very, a very uh, well-known family that has been involved in ministry forever and ever and ever. And I highly respect this family. Uh, and, and the patriarch of the family recently got very, very ill. And I was following these public uh, announcements on, on social media. They were kind of giving updates, like live updates on the status of this gentleman who's kind of a really well-known ministry figure in, our, in the area I used to live in. And it was really sad because the reports were awful. And, and this, this young lady was, on behalf of her father, was calling for the masses to pray for a miracle. And I was. I was absolutely praying that God would bring healing. Uh, uh, that God would do the miraculous in this, young, in this man's life. He wasn't an old man. He was a, you know, he's an older man. And then I remember one of the last uh, updates I, I watched. Uh, it was really bad. It was pretty evident that, that there was no hope that, that this person was going to live. But, like, I'm thinking of this guy. It's like, man, he's such a faithful dude. He's been doing ministry for, for 50 years. He has proclaimed Jesus to, to thousands. His, there's fruit everywhere. His hope is in not this world but in another kingdom. That's what I'm thinking, right? And I get it because there's a grieving daughter. She doesn't want to lose her dad. So I'm not trying to be cruel about her, her pain. 
But she said something in her update that startled me a little bit. She said, please keep praying for miracles or something like this. Please, please, please keep praying for a miracle. And if God doesn't heal my dad, I don't know who this God is that I worship. And though I certainly understand the, 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 the heartbreak of a young woman not wanting to watch her father die, that's horrible. And I empathize with that, I really do. But theologically, I was thinking about her dad, I'm like, bro, that's a, that's a promotion for him. He'll be in the presence of the living God. This affliction will no longer be stealing his breath. He'll have every tear wiped, he'll be made whole. He'll be healed. It's like, I get it. Like, I don't want to say goodbye to people I love either. But we have a greater hope than that. And my fear, when it comes to an obsession with miracles and what the supernatural work God can do in the here and now is that it takes our eyes off the work he's already done. The greatest miracle is not that God can raise Lazarus from the dead. That's incredible. The greatest miracle is not that he can take Peter's mom or mother-in-law who has a fever and make her well or cast out a demon or heal a leper. Those are amazing. The greatest miracle is that he has overcome death. He's overcome sin. And the disease that separates us from God has been dealt with on the cross. And we can be brought into relationship with God and have life. So what's the thing that Jesus models for us? As the crowds are clamoring for miracles, what does Jesus model for us as an antidote to getting caught up in uh, taking his eyes down from his calling? Well, the the answer is the, the desolate place. Perhaps it was in that place of solitude on the side of that mountain on that morning as Jesus met with the Father that he was reminded by the Father of the purpose for which he came. Perhaps it could have been in that prayer of solitude that that Jesus was reaffirmed in the direction that the Father had given him so that he would not be tempted to yield to the expectations of man. If Jesus needed a desolate place, how important is a desolate place in your life and in my life? How important do we need to find a place without the shouts of the crowds that we can hear the voice of God and walk accordingly? How important is it that we get away from the crowds of social media, political crowds, cultural crowds, the crowds of the Joneses? I mean, how important that we find a desolate place to hear the voice of God? As we look at the heart of Jesus here, there's this, this absolute white-hot commitment to his calling. May the heart of Jesus be the heart of his church. May we as a church never forget why we are the church and what God has called his church to do and be. Lastly, let's look at the last uh, six verses here, verses 40 through 45. Look at verse 41. I'd encourage you to underline that whole uh, first half of that statement. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, touched the leper. This leper comes to him imploring that Jesus heal him. He kneels before Jesus and he says, if you will, make me clean. So here's the the last thing I would encourage you to write down today. The heart of Jesus is revealed here in his compassion for the afflicted. We see the heart of Jesus on display in his compassion for the afflicted. The same way Jesus extended care to the afflicted woman in, in Peter's household, it follows suit here with the leper. He, his response when the guy comes and falls down in humility before Jesus is Jesus draws near to him. He touches him. And he heals him. Imagine the life of a leper in the first century. The Old Testament Levitical law mandates and, and, uh, that they live in a certain way. And as you look at how the, the law uh, influences the life of the leper, it is devastating. You think about what it must have been like for a Jew with leprosy to live in this time. Leviticus 13, verses 4 and 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Uh, uh, The law says the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. I mean, can you imagine to no fault of your own to contract this disease? Can you imagine the relational pain that ensued from the isolation and the loneliness? Can you imagine the social pain of having to shout unclean, unclean anytime someone was within eyeshot? Can you imagine the physical pain of having your body slowly rot away? Can you imagine what it was like? Let me read you something I read this week about what it was like to have leprosy. The symptoms start in the skin in the peripheral nervous system outside the brain and spinal cord. And then it spreads to other parts such as hands and feet and face and earlobes. Patients with leprosy experience disfigurement of the skin and bones, twisting of the limbs, and curling of the fingers to form the characteristic claw hand. 
Facial changes include the thickening of the outer ear, the collapse of the nose, tumor-like growths form on the skin and in the respiratory tract. The optic nerve begins to deteriorate. The, the largest numbers of deformities develop from the loss of pain sensation due to the extensive nerve damage. For instance, inattentive patients can, picked up a cup, can pick up a cup of boiling water without flinching. In fact, some leprosy patients have had their fingers eaten by rats in their sleep because they were totally unaware of what was happening because the lack of pain receptors would not let them know that they were being eaten alive. This just paints an absolutely desperate picture for this man who sees, them, who sees Jesus coming. It's impossible to know if this guy with leprosy knew of Jesus simply as the miracle man or if on some level he had understanding or he recognized more deeply that somehow through Jesus the power of God was directed. We don't know what was going on in this man's heart, but we know he broke Mosaic law in his desperation. He approached Jesus, and in humility he bows down before Jesus. He begs him for healing. And Jesus was moved by the man's desperate plea. If you want to circle a, a, a line, I had you underline it. If you want to pay very much attention to three-word phrase, moved with pity. Jesus was moved with pity. In other words, he was moved with compassion. That word pity is a word, I'm, I'm not a, a Greek scholar, but I know that word. It's splachnizomai. And the word splachna that this word comes from just simply means your, in your, your innards, your, your lungs, your heart, your guts. Splachnizomai is an expression that's in other places in Scripture that means that Jesus was so deeply moved by this man's affliction that at the very center of who he was as a man, he was moved. His guts were ripped out by the suffering of this man. His heart was ripped from his chest by the suffering of this man. Splachnizomai. This afflicted man moved Jesus with compassion in his very core and in a shocking display of compassion, Jesus touches the leper. Can you imagine? It's a communicable disease. How long had it been since this man had been touched by another human being, especially touched in love? How long had it been in this man's life where someone didn't run from him but instead drew near to him? How long had it been since he had been shown tangible acts of love? In that one touch, Jesus addressed every area of pain in this man's life. The relational pain of being isolated and alone was soothed by the loving, compassionate touch of someone who could do something about it. The, the, the social pain, the stigma of having to shout unclean and being cast out was immediately removed as the most important person in space touched the man and drew near to him. And the healing, the divine healing that Christ brought to, the, brought to this man's body relieved the physical pain. Immediately, it says in verse 42, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And then in verses 43 and 44, Jesus gives some instructions to this guy. He, he charges him sternly to not tell anybody but he says, go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. When Jesus pronounced, I will have compassion on you, I will have pity and be clean, Jesus was, was declaring this man's healing. But it was not a priestly proclamation. And so Jesus gives this guy instructions to follow the Levitical law to go first to his priest in his town of residence to be inspected. And then he'd go to Jerusalem where he'd, where he'd be declared clean by a priestly declaration. He'd offer the appropriate sacrifices to, uh, to, to sort of reveal or solidify the cleansing. And understand this, uh, leprosy was an uncurable disease. There's only two times in all of the Old Testament where leprosy is cured. It was, it was, it was considered uh, harder to cure leprosy than to raise someone from the dead. And so as this man would have gone to Jerusalem cleansed by the powerful touch of Messiah King Jesus, and he would have given testimony of what Jesus did for him in Galilee, it would have been an announcement to the temple, an announcement to the priestly order that God was doing something new in and through Jesus Christ. It was evident that God was doing something new. I read this week that the cleansing of the leper indicates the new character of God's action in bringing Jesus among man. Jesus admonished the guy not to say anything, but of course he did. And so Jesus got so famous that for a season he couldn't even go into towns and villages, and he was forced to do ministry in a desolate place. It's one thing, if you think about this, this moment when Jesus touches this guy, right? It's one thing if a traveling miracle worker were to reach out and touch a leper, some magician. It would have probably been shocking even to those who watched this miracle worker touch this man with leprosy. It would have been, it would have been, it would have been huge. But, but what's even more significant is that it wasn't just a miracle worker, right? It was God himself that touched this afflicted man. 
I think about the encounter that this man had with Jesus, and I think about the place and the role of affliction. As I studied this text over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about this. You know, when this guy got, I don't know his story, I'm speculating here, right? When this guy realized he had leprosy, can you imagine how devastating that was? When he, when he knew that was going to mean in his life, what the, the implication of that affliction was going to mean for him, can you imagine how devastating that was? No community, outside of the village, constant pain, your body's going to slowly rot away. But it was because of the affliction in the man's life that when Jesus shows up on the scene, this man is able to draw near to Jesus. Jesus draws near to him, and Jesus has compassion on him. He touches him, and he heals him. Had the man never had the affliction, he never would have had the the encounter. Had the man never had the affliction, he never would have had the motivation in desperation to sprint to the one who can heal him and beg for mercy. Had he never had the affliction, perhaps he would have remained self-sufficient until the day that he died. But the affliction of, of leprosy in this man's life was the very impetus that led him to have an encounter with Jesus. Have you ever thought of your affliction as a blessing? Have you ever thought that maybe the, the most significant seasons of pain in your life have been designed by God to draw you into his very presence, that you would fall to your knees and you would experience the living God draw near to you in love and touch you with his healing power? It blows my mind. It absolutely blows my mind that this forgotten, throwaway man who lived in a garbage heap outside the village, wrapped in sackcloth, caught the attention of the living God. And of all the things that Jesus could have done on that day, he went to that man and showed him love and healed him. It's the very heart of God. It's the very heart of Jesus to show compassion for the afflicted. And oh God, may the heart of Jesus be the heart of his church. We are the body of Christ. We are the the incarnational presence of Jesus on planet earth today. And when you and I, in the name of Jesus, extend a compassionate hand to those around us, when we draw near and we touch and we bring healing into people's lives, it is for the glory of God. It is the very presence of Jesus in our community. May the heart of Jesus be the heart of his church. And before I close in prayer, I just, as I I was sitting in this text, I know I'm going a little long, I apologize, but... As I was sitting in this text this week, man, I just found myself, have you, just, have you ever just paused and stepped out of the daily life, stepped out of the grind for 10 minutes in a desolate place and just thought about your life? I mean, holistically, comprehensively, thought about the details of your life, thought about your convictions, thought about the way that you're living. Have you ever just asked yourself, am I really living for the right things? Am I being influenced by the right voices? What crowds are speaking into my life? Am I walking the right path? This week as we were reviewing the sermon, one of the pastors said something that has stuck with me since Thursday. I think it was Brent, maybe. And Brent said, uh, you know, we're all being discipled. All of us are being discipled to walk in a certain way. The question is, by whom or by what? And then Jeremy piped in and he said, you know, the endless scroll is not passive. And then Brent spoke up and he said, our kids are being discipled. Man, I wonder what influences the crowds are having in your life. Because I've been wondering the same thing for my life. Crowds say lots of things. I was reminded this week that we have crowds that kind of live in our historical past that still have influence in our present. Sometimes we live our lives under the continued influence of the voices of the crowds in our pained past, the voices of dysfunctional families, the crowds of our most ardent critics, our worst failures. And those crowds can still be speaking into your life today. I could go on and on. The crowds of culture, of news media, of politics, of Netflix, of TikTok, and YouTube. I could go on and on. And just like in Jesus' time when the crowds were actively working against the will of God, the crowds today, whether they're virtual or real or literal, the crowds today are actively working against the will of God. Look with me again one last time at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. What is your desolate place? Where do you go to get away from the noise of the crowds, the lies of the crowds, the influence of the crowds, 
What might it look like in your life and in my life and in the life of our church if we were to get away from all of these crowds where we could get away from the demands on our time and attention? If we could find a place, a regular place, a rhythm in our life in the desolate place where we could hear the voice of God, commune with God, hear his will for our lives on a regular basis? Oh man, may the heart of Jesus be the heart of his church. What might it look like and how might God transform our church and the community we live in through our church if we regularly met with him, got our marching orders from him, got renewed by him and headed out into the world as his very hands and his very feet, headed into our homes and into our marriages and into our families, being renewed and reminded of true things that only come when we meet with him in a desolate place. Maybe passionately, fervently, desperately seek after those desolate places where the heart of Jesus can become our very heart. Pray with me. Father, I'm very thankful for this text. God, I'm thankful for the way you allowed me to meet with you and worship personally this week as, as I, I was blessed with opportunity to study and, 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 and just gaze upon the beauty of your heart as it's on display here in this passage. And God, I do. I pray for the people of our church. God, I pray for us collectively. God, I pray for the families present. I pray for us individually, God, that, that we would be a people who would have the very heartbeat of Jesus being reflected in our life. God, may we be a people that knows what it is to have compassion on the afflicted, God. Help us be a people that remain committed to the very vision and mission you have given to your church. God, help us be a people who are committed to caring for one another. God, for your glory. And God, I pray that as we gather here today, for those of us that live lives that never stop, we're on the treadmill and we, we don't have a desolate place, God, I pray that you would make it accessible to us, God. You would help us understand by, by, the, by the understanding of your spirit, God, how, how to, to create a discipline or a rhythm in our life where we can step away from the crowds, the temptation of the crowds, to meet with you, to hear from you, God, to walk as you would have us walk. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.